0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is Anthony Tucker Jones, and we will be discussing his book, Battle of the Cities Urban Warfare on the Eastern Front, that was published by Pen and Sword Military in 2023. Anthony Tucker Jones is a former defense intelligence officer and a widely published expert on regional conflicts, counterterrorism, armored and aerial warfare. He is also the author of over 30 books. This will be my second interview with Anthony Tucker-Jones. Anthony Tucker-Jones, welcome once again back to the uh, New Books Network.
1: Hi, Stephen. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me back.
2: Now, uh, as usual, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book?
1: Um, Well, as you know, I'm a British military historian. My tastes are broad, but I have found myself in recent years concentrating on the Second World War. One of the campaigns that's always fascinated me, because it's largely neglected here in the West, is the fighting on the Eastern Front from 41 to 1945. Um, I've written a number of books over the years on, on the campaigns, um, but it occurred to me it was probably a good time to write a sort of overview of the fighting for the cities, both in the Western Soviet Union and in the and and Eastern Europe, because most books tend to focus on the bigger battles, or or they do the big three. So it tends to be, you know, Stalingrad, Moscow, and Leningrad. They're the big three ones that you know people are interested in and, and liked. But I thought there were so many other cities that were involved in you know in the conflict uh, on the Eastern Front that it, it it would be good to survey them. And in fact, of course, the challenge for me as a writer was what cities to include and what to leave out. Because actually, when you look at it, there are an awful lot. Uh, So what I did was I kind of oiled it down to 18, uh, most of them in the Soviet Union, but some in Western Europe, because obviously as as the Eastern Front collapsed and the fighting went into the East European states, which of course were Axis satellite allies, none, two of them are repeated. So for obvious reasons, Sevastopol and Kharkov is in there there twice. uh, because a lot of the cities, of course, were fought, fought over multiple times. You know, they were overrun by the Germans and then retaken. Uh, in the case of Kharkov, I mean, it, there were four separate, distinct battles for its possession. Um, so that kind of, that's kind of what inspired me. You know, I, I say I, I wrote all many years ago uh, uh, an overview called Slaughter on the Eastern Front, which sort of, you know, took the reader through all the various campaigns. But uh, to my mind, you know, it, it seemed a good time to do, you know, this overview of, Fighting for the cities on the eastern front, but the other thing, what I wanted to do was show how Hitler's obsession with certain Soviet cities ended up skewing his strategy. You know that actually they were his undoing. You know I've obviously mentioned the the big three, but but he he, he 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 sort of lost sight of what his his goals were, and we can discuss that a bit in a minute if you like. Um, so they had they had a real impact on the course and the outcome of the war. yeah so
2: how significant was urban warfare on the eastern front because just as you mentioned it's usually like the bigger battles that usually get uh focused on and we did have a previous interview on the battle of course that's a major one that gets a lot of attention but other than stalingrad and berlin like in terms of like street by street urban combat how significant was urban combat on the eastern front overall
1: well, but i mean it, it's interesting because of course we tend to look at uh the second world war in terms of what we would call today's maneuver warfare you know so in in german parlance it's blitzkrieg um and as we know you know sort of 40 41 things happened very quickly so we we have this sort of image of the second world war about being you know combined arms particularly the germans you know panzers laureate infantry the Luftwaffe and support artillery so you have this this image of um, very mobile fluid warfare. But of course, the thing with cities is they are traditionally built on major watercourses, so major rivers. So they actually become uh, communication focuses because obviously they'll if they're built either side of a river, they have major road and rail bridges. Um, they're usually, depending on their size, seat to local government as well, uh, regional administration. So they're actually there. Uh, and also, of course, a lot of them have Uh, Industrial suburbs. So a city like Kharkov was a major weapons manufacturing center, as was Stalingrad, as was Leningrad. You know, they're places where weapons and munitions are manufactured. So again, it makes their capture quite important because that denies, you know, uh, by Hitler capturing them, it denies resources to the Red Army. Um, So initially, in the opening stages of Operation Barbarossa, uh, a lot of the Western Soviet cities were overrun pretty quickly. So Kiev, Kharkov, particularly Minsk and Novgorod, which were on the road to Moscow, uh, they fell fairly quickly, largely because the armies assigned to defend them got themselves trapped in pockets on the outskirts of the cities, and a lot of them were abandoned fairly quickly. Uh, you know, Kharkov is a fine example of that. Um, quite surprisingly, actually, Stalin let his troops withdraw rather than insist- they do you know a last stand there. They just conducted a, a rearguard operation for the city, largely to cover the evacuation of very vital industrial equipment. Um, you know, Kharkov famously was the home to, uh, among the T-34. So it was vital for Soviet Union's war effort that as much, uh, you know, industrial plant and machine tools were evacuated. So really they only fought a delaying action at, at, at Kharkov. Uh, but as the war progressed, of course, um, things began to bulk down, um, Again, we can come on to its importance later, but somewhere like Rostov-Rostov on the Don was very important because it was a major, major communications hub for that part of the world. Now, for the earlier parts
2: of the war, like 1939 to 41, like the early stages of Barbarossa, uh, how well trained was the Wehrmacht for uh, urban operations? Because you just mentioned that, uh, even in the book, that you know the Germans were not as used to uh, urban combat. Because they were so used to being able to just go blitzkrieg through large swaths of territory, and then the cities would just kind of collapse uh, as a byproduct of that. Sure,
1: you're right. I mean, um, as with the, you know, the Germans of, had a habit of over-engineering their equipment, over-planning, over-preparing, which actually, you know, in military terms is is, is good. So anyway, when it came to the Western campaigns, their engineers were very well prepared for dealing with concrete fortifications. Um, but as we know with the blitzkrieg in the West, they pretty much bypassed them. Um, so they didn't really have a great need for urban warfare capabilities because what tended to happen is once field armies were defeated and they'd overrun large swathes of territory and maybe surrounded a capital city, they tended to surrender. Uh, You know, Paris declared an open city, surrendered quite quickly, you know, Rotterdam was bombed in the Netherlands, so the rest of the cities surrendered pretty quickly. Um, You know, uh, the Balkans campaigns apart from Belgrade, which, you know, was made an example of because the Yugoslavs tried to resist and Hitler bombed it. On the whole, typically they surrendered, capital cities uh, surrendered fairly rapidly. You know, the Germans overrun Greece. so they their their mindset at the start of the war, of course, fighting uh, Western armies was that the political will to resist and hold a capital city would or a major city would collapse once their field armies were defeated. Whereas Stalin came up with this sort of what I dubbed breakwater theory, in that the longer a city held out, the longer it acted as a breakwater for the Wehrmacht to expend its, its strength against, you know, in Leningrad and incredible are prime examples of that. Um, so most of the time, he insisted that his troops resist for as long as possible not to give up. Obviously, initially, he didn't want to surrender any of Mother Russia's soil. Uh, and also, that tactic in the early stages of the war cost him dearly, because they ended up with very large pockets of troops surrounded, which didn't help. But his philosophy very much was, hold wherever you can. And of course, in doing that, it meant the Germans increasingly had to develop and hone um street fighting capabilities that that they had not needed in the west
2: yes uh, i remember one account from uh in stalingrad one veteran of stalingrad a german veteran kind of almost said yeah our training was more for like blitzkrieg it didn't really prepare us for this type of fighting whereas the red army they had more of according to his account they had more of like trench fighting so they were a little bit better prepared for this uh type of fighting of course this is stalingrad which is Forty-two, 43, we're still in the early stages of Barbarossa, and the Red Army was, of course, recovering from its defeat in, uh, or its difficulties in Finland and also purges, and also just its rapid uh, expansion, as uh, one of my previous interviews with Roger Reese uh, talked about uh, very recently.
1: Um, now, sorry, it to means to cut, cut in there, but yeah, as, as I said earlier, of course the, the German mindset wasn't so much uh, taking cities, it was overcoming fortifications. Uh, so, what it did mean is when they turned east, they'd already um, developed and manufactured quite a lot of siege equipment. So, they had, you know, siege artillery, siege mortars, very famously, uh, rail guns, which turned out to be complete white elephants. But they had developed quite a lot of equipment that could be used for urban warfare, uh, you know, particularly bringing down buildings and silencing bunkers. So, they, they, the stuff of the world needs they kind of had the equipment, but not really the tactics on how to how to clear buildings, you know, room by room. Yes. Now,
2: one of the first major bad urban battles that you talk about is the Battle of Moscow. And this has significance and more reasons than one, not just for urban combat context, but also this is where the Germans come the closest to actually defeating the Soviet Union you know, at least achieving a major victory, but then also this is their first major defeat in the war. So what significance does Moscow have in the context that we're talking about?
1: You know, the Germans came to suck, you know, in the winter of 41, um, 42, because they had planned for a swift victory. So the idea of Barbarossa, it was supposed to take six weeks to bring the Red Army to its knees, uh, and the Soviet Union, if Stalin was still in power, would sue for peace and the Germans would be left occupying the great sway of the Western Soviet Union. Um, but what they hadn't really taken into account was what would happen if the winter set in before they got to Moscow, which of course is indeed what happened. And they got to Moscow's outskirts, the suburbs, uh, but that's as far as they got. And of course, this was a major failing because what they really needed to do and they should have learned from the Western campaigns was if they took Moscow, that was a body blow to the morale of the Soviet Union. Um You know, again, it's a major communications hub, major manufacturing centre, but also, of course, it's the, the beating heart of the Soviet Union. And if they captured it, you know, if they launched it all out of for the city would Stalin have stayed? Would he have left? Um, If the Germans had taken it, it's quite possible that there might have been a power struggle, that the army might have sought to unseat him or one of his. You know, one of his Politburo colleagues sort of sought to have him removed. So there's a, there's a chance that Stalin might have fallen if they take a Moscow. You know, he might have been killed in the in the city during its defence, or there might have been a political coup that, coup that got rid of him. But of course, the Germans lost momentum, were ill-prepared for the winter, so they lost momentum. And at that crucial moment, uh, General Zhukov was able to redeploy uh, Arden winter troops from Siberia. Uh, ready to launch a major counteroffensive along the entire front by Moscow to drive the Germans away from Moscow. Now, the Red Army did that. Their casualties were absolutely appalling. They didn't really know what they were doing. So it was a blunt instrument, but it worked in that it it drove the Germans sufficiently far away from Moscow to make Stalin and his cronies feel you know, that Moscow could be saved. And also, of course, quite rightly in, in Soviet terms, it was a great propaganda victory because the Germans had stumbled at the the, the the final hurdle. So Moscow is very, very important. And then, of course, what happens is that during the summer of the following year, uh, Hitler starts to lose focus. So he starts to concentrate on the flanks. So instead of massing his forces for another major effort to take Moscow, he starts fooling about with, you know, clearing the Ukraine, clearing the Crimea, uh, still trying to take Leningrad. Um, so he loses, he loses focus. And indeed, as the war goes on, it sort of changes from a political goal to one of natural resources. He kind of goes on this sort of will o' the wisp hunt, if you like, for you know, grain and oil. Uh, Ukraine being the breadbasket, the Soviet Union, uh, and then the Caucasus being the primary oil supplying region to Soviet Union. He got it in his head that you know he needed to capture these. If the Red Army was deprived of oil, then it would grind to a halt. Uh, but of course, that actually ended up uh, resulting in catastrophic overstretch. Um, so to my mind, that's a major strategic blunder. He should have carried on trying to take Moscow.
2: Now, another battle that you feature is the Battle of Kiev, which is, I believe, July-August 1941. And this was one reason why they delayed the assault on Moscow, because Hitler insisted on clearing the flanks of Army Group uh, Center, both in the south and in the, the north. So what is the significance of the Battle of Kiev and also... What kind of contributed to the Red Army defeat in that battle?
1: Well, the important thing to remember is at the cusp of the launch of um, Operation Barbarossa, the Soviet schools were not blind to what was happening. But Stalin had issued this rather ridiculous edict that nothing was to be done to provoke Hitler, even though uh, Zhukov and Timoshenko knew that the Germans were massing in, in, in Poland uh, ready to attack. So as a way of getting around um, Stalin's refusal to organize mass mobilization across the Soviet Union, they arranged for major military exercises to be conducted in the Soviet Union's Western military district. Uh, But what that meant was, was large numbers of Soviet troops were in transit. Uh, Their weapons had not necessarily been issued. Ammunition had not been issued. Artillery was elsewhere. Tanks were elsewhere. So in fact, Barbarossa hit the Red Army at the optimum time you know, Timoshenko and Zhukov's intentions were were right. You know, they were well intentioned, but the problem is because they were in the process of gathering their armies, Hitler caught them at a moment probably when they were most vulnerable. Um, and what happened was that Stalin didn't really want to accept that he was losing, so he kept on insisting that the Red Army launched counterattacks. Well, of course, to do that they had to muster troops, and of course, in the case of Kiev, he didn't want to lose the city. They would mash large numbers of troops and conduct these counterattacks. But what that did was it simply drove the Red Army deeper into um the Wehrmacht Moose, if you like. Uh and they and a lot very violently large, you know, hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops ended up trapped in pockets uh and ended up surrendering because there was nowhere for them to go. Uh and the net result of that was of course when they were defeated outside cities like Kiev and Kharkov, uh there were no troops left to defend those cities because obviously they'd been surrounded and and forced to lay down their arms. So certainly the battles in the Ukraine are very important. As you rightly point out, Hitler knew that he needed to clear his flanks because there were large numbers of Soviet troops on them. Uh, and that that included, obviously, um, you know, liquidating those that were in the Ukraine. Yes,
2: I remember one estimate. It was almost 650,000 Soviet troops were captured at uh, Kiev. Somewhere around that number, 600 to 700,000. That's a real impressive number for any uh, military to to lose.
1: I, I think what it does also illustrates the at that stage of the war poor level of Soviet command and control. You know because that you know half a million men to lose them in one go. Why was there no plan to relieve them? Why did they not withdraw? You know why did they not conduct a rearguard action to save large numbers of them? Um, you know in the early stages of the war Stalin would and you know. Hitler was later to emulate it in the Latzbad or Stalin was adamant that they were not to give ground. And of course, if you do that, you then lose the initiative, Um, you know, because if you're stuck in one place, you can't move about. Uh, And certainly, uh, 41 42, the Germans are fighting a very, very fluid battle. Uh, You know, they were very flexible. Uh, They fought on their feet. They showed initiative. The other thing is to remember, of course, in the opening stages of Barbarossa, much of the Red Air Force had been knocked out either in the air or on the ground so the Luftwaffe largely had a free hand so it meant you know every time the soviets were ordered to counterattack, they had to mash their troops of course when you mash your troops they present a very tempting target for the Luftwaffe so they tended to be bombed and shelled into oblivion before they'd even got to the jump off points for the attacks Luftwaffe also of course um would bomb bridges so they'd take out bridges so it made very difficult to bring up supplies withdraw wounded you know so they they At that stage of all the Wehrmacht working together very effectively paralyzed the Soviet command and control uh, of large numbers of troops um, and basically sapped their will to resist. Uh, again, I can't remember what the total number is. It's something like three million in the opening stages of the war on the Eastern Front surrendered. I mean, that's a colossal, colossal number. But that goes back to my point that Hitler knew he needed to defeat the Soviet Union in six weeks because he could not afford to fight a war attrition Soviet population was such that it could regenerate its armies. It would take time, and obviously, it would need factories to manufacture weapons. They'd need to be trained and equipped, and all the rest of it. But the Soviet population, obviously, was vastly bigger than that of Germany. So, if Hitler got locked into a war of attrition, it was one that inevitably he was going to lose. Um, and that's in part, of course, where his strategic failure comes: is that he loses sight of what his goals were. You know in terms of defeating the Soviet Union. Now, any sane person would have simply gone, don't do it in the first place. You know, it, 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 it was a, ultimately, it was a war he couldn't lose because the Red Army would have retreated east of the Ural Mountains anyway, licked its wounds, recuperated, and at some point would have sought to recover the western so, western portion of the Soviet Union. So quite what Hitler thought his long-term goals were, I don't know. You know, his goal was achievable short-term, but long-term I don't think it ever was kind of
2: a lack of grand uh, strategy uh, thinking on the part of the the Germans during World War II, which really cost them in the end.
1: Yeah, you're right. But German intelligence tried to warn him. I mean, their Eastern Front intelligence collecting organization was really, really good. You know, they they had collected all this data, all this information, so they knew all about um, Soviet industrial capacity, all about its population size, its regeneration capabilities. So it had warned Hitler, you know, that this this was a very real danger. He was picking a fight he could not win, but he chose to ignore it. Yes,
2: that was actually one issue after the war with uh, Operation Paperclip where American intelligence, they actually wanted some of these guys, uh, German intelligence officers who spied on the Soviet Union because they wanted that data because now the Cold war was uh, underway and they said, no, uh, you're your information is useful for us but of course the catch was also we protected them from any type of prosecutions for war crimes but that's like well you help us and we'll we'll have your back and that's kind of become a little controversial uh, over the years
1: Yes, you're right I think it was Colonel Thomas Colonel Galen who, who wrote his memoirs after the war and became a general and ended up uh, the intelligence head of intelligence in West Germany. Um, He surrendered, you're right, he surrendered to the Americans and he handed over his entire database to the Americans. You know, so all the German intelligence on Soviet Union, part of the trade-off that had been given, you know, free from prosecution and safety in the West was that he handed over all this information and and some of his staff went with him as well. Um, Obviously, he had this very useful bargaining chip. Yes. Now, uh, another area
2: that was a focus of urban operations in 1941 was the crimea which of course in recent years has become in the headlines again but you focus on particularly odessa and sebastopol so what were some of the early urban operations in the crimea in
1: 1941 so of course is on the north coast of um the the black sea i always get the baltic and the black mixed up it's that Homer simpson moment isn't it Uh, the black sea it's on the north coast to the to the west uh, of the sort of, you know, land entrance to the Crimea, is, if you like, the it's the Perikop isthmus that leads onto it. Um, both were important naval bases, both um, were attacked by the Romanians as well as the Germans. I mean, that's important to remember that Romania had sided with Germany, so took part in Barbarossa. And the Romanians put an army with German support against Odessa, uh, and Odessa held out very well, uh, but got to the point where it was in danger of being taken. And it's one of those few occasions, again, where, uh, Stalin authorized a withdrawal, So the garrison, uh, and a lot of the people from the city were evacuated down to Sevastopol, which of course is the Soviet's e-naval base, uh, in the Black Sea. Um, and it wasn't until Odessa was taken, of course, that the Germans and the Romanians could then press on east towards the entrance to the Crimea. And one of the reasons, uh, Hitler needed to take the Was Obviously, he needed to take Sevastopol because that would deny it to the Soviet fleet. Um, he didn't really he didn't have a navy at that time on the Black Sea. Uh, the only way of neutralizing the Soviet fleet was using the Luftwaffe. So, what he needed to do as quickly as possible was to deny them of their naval bases as much as possible. Uh, and if you keep going east, obviously you've got Georgia there uh, on the eastern eastern coast of the Black Sea. He needed to take all those naval bases. So the key first one obviously was Sevastopol. The other reason he needed Sevastopol was he wanted to clear the Crimea uh, so he get he could get across the Kersh uh, Isthmus into the kursh Peninsula, into the Kuban, which leads down into Caucasus because, of course, one of his goals became securing the oil down there. So he couldn't leave the Crimea held by the Soviets in his rear because, obviously, they could hold out and support of the Red, Red Navy, the Soviet Navy, because they could keep ferrying in troops and supplies, which, indeed what happened until the Germans finally secured it uh, and it, and it, it took them a long time to take Sevastopol. I mean, the, the Soviets held out quite heroically there for a long time, but of course its defenses were really good because it'd always been, um, because of its role over the years, you know, it had all these forts facing both to, to sea and, uh, landward.
2: And that's, uh, kind of what contributed to why Sebastopol was able to hold out for uh, so
1: long against the Germans. Well, another one of the reasons is, of course, the Germans first had to clear the rest of the Crimea. Um, and the Crimea uh, has an awful lot of mountain ranges. You know, the central area of it is heavily mountained. So to clear that, they had to do that. Also, of course, initially, the Kirsch was a good point for the Red Army to cross over with reinforcements. So they had to secure that the Kirsch to stop Soviet troops crossing the straits there. It's a very narrow waterway, which leads into the Sea of Azov, just to the north. Uh, The Germans had to close that off to stop the Red Army feeding reinforcements into the Crimea. So they had to secure that and the rest of the Crimea, really, before they can turn back west um, to deal with Sevastopol itself. So that's one of the reasons why it it took so long. And before the Germans launched a full-out assault, the, the Red Army kept on conducting uh, counterattacks in the Crimea, you know, kept feeding in more and more troops. And also the Soviet Navy very heroically kept coming in very close to the Crimean coast and shelling German positions, uh, you know, at risk of being bombed by the Luftwaffe because obviously once they'd taken Odessa, they had all the airfields there so they could operate uh, down into the northern part of the Black Sea. So the initially the Red Fleet, until it start, its losses got to such a stage where um, Stalin ordered it not, not to put to sea anymore because, you know, he was using ships too much. Uh, It also contributed to slowing down um, the German conquest of the Crimea.
2: Now, Sebastopol is also where the Germans used uh, Dora, the major siege gun. And you mentioned like their siege guns uh, early on because they were expecting traditional sieges, not necessarily like street by street fighting. Uh, Is that true?
1: Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, they they prepared quite a lot of weapons to deal with the French Maginot Line, which of course was this whole series of um, concrete fortifications along the German and French border. Uh, But because they bypassed the Maginot Line, they didn't need them. So they shipped a lot of them um, for the Eastern Front. You're right to deal with particularly Sevastopol because it was so well defended. And they built two rail guns, Gustav and Dora, great, huge, enormous things. I'm going from memory here, but they needed some like 1500 crew, you know, so it shows you how manpower intensive they were. They needed special railway lines late because they were so enormous. So they were real white elephants, but, um, I think having built them, they decided that they, they needed them. So one of them was sent down into Crimea. I can't remember how many rounds it fired, not a lot. It was something like 16. Again, I'm going from memory here, but it didn't fire a lot around, but they, but of course the, the, the shells were so heavy that they would pierce pretty much any concrete so the the poor defenders of Sevastopol, you know even in their deepest bunkers um found themselves at you know at risk now as we go from 1941 to
2: 1942 is there any type of shift in the german capabilities in terms of urban warfare are they kind of becoming a little more familiar with how to fight and trained in urban operations
1: yes i mean the germans rapidly realized they needed to hone their street fighting skills because obviously the fighting began to coalesce around leningrad uh, which of course was never ever completely surrounded so the soviets were feeding reinforcements all the time uh and then obviously taking stalingrad uh stalin refused to evacuate the population and, and he refused to allow the red army to withdraw to the eastern bank of the Volga, which you could have quite easily have done and used the river as a barrier. So it clung on, it clung on in, the, uh, in the industrial area, on the western banks of the river. Uh, and the Germans, of course, had to fight to clear them out of that. Um, as the winter progressed, of course, the fighting sort of bogged down. But it, it, yes, I mean, it became sort of a, a tunnelers' warfare. And also, particularly in the case of Stalingrad, in the western suburbs of the city, a lot of the buildings were built of wood. So of course once they'd been shelled or bombed on a regular basis, they'd burn down. Uh, I've seen some marvelous photos of this landscape of just chimneys, because the only thing in the house was that was built of brick was the chimney stack. So you had these sort of strange forlorn towers on this open landscape where the houses were what well what stood. And also of course what the both the Germans and the, the Russians did was uh, they would take the wood, so those houses that they didn't use as accommodation. Or uh, had been ruined, and there was still timber left. They would use it, obviously, to build bunkers and and, and trenches and and what have you uh, for siege warfare. Um, so again, a lot of buildings vanished. So it was only sort of the central core of the city, particularly the industrial area where you had brick factories and things. And and then, of course, famously the Stalingrad, uh, you know, concrete grain side that both sides fought over because whoever controlled it had you know 360 view of the of the city.
0: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
2: Now, we just talked about the Germans. How is the Red Army kind of evolving in its capabilities of urban warfare from 1941
1: to 1942? Well, again, you know, when the Second World War broke out, the the Red Army was struggling with the very things that uh, the Germans had figured out. So it it was on the cusp of how do you do maneuver warfare? Uh, And in fact... Uh, the Red Army created these tank-mechanised corps to make them highly mobile, uh, and at the last minute, they changed their minds and all the tanks were again parceled back out to the infantry divisions as an infantry support weapon. So, whereas the Germans had gone, it's an iron fist and it'll punch through the enemy lines and the infantry follow up and surround those troops you know, that have been isolated. So the Soviets had come round to the German way of thinking and then changed their minds. Uh, which cost them dearly. So their their primary military thinking in in you know in the summer of uh, 1941 was how do we best defend the Soviet Union's borders? Uh, and of course they they had never got that right. And I don't think they'd given much thought to defending their cities. I suspect you know traditionally what they did was they used scorched earth techniques. You know if you think of Napoleon's invasion of, of Russia. What they did was they simply burned everything that the French could use and withdrew. And I think Soviet mindset, even in the you know in 1941, 42 was, we'll, we'll burn everything, evacuate everything we can and we'll destroy all bridges to slow the Germans down. So that that was their mindset. It wasn't until Stalin started making it clear that he wanted certain cities held. So even in Sevastopol, as we've just discovered, Leningrad, Stalingrad that they had to start thinking about street fighting capabilities and what is the best way to defend a city that's under siege. Uh and all and all that took time. Um obviously when the time of the war turned, the Soviets then had to their mindset had to go from how do I defend a city to how do I capture one. You know, so they sort of found themselves in the same situation as the Germans did in the in the summer of sort of forty two and forty three. Now the next significant battle that you
2: talk about in the book is Rostov on the Don, and what significance did this city have for the Germans in 1941, 1942?
1: I was quite interested in covering uh, Rostov because in, in most books on the Eastern Front, it tends to be a bit of a footnote. You know, uh, the Germans captured it, but that's all you really need to know. Whereas actually, it it, it was a pivotal ball, um, city because it opened the road north towards Stalingrad and it opened the road south into the Caucasus. Um, the Caucasus, because of its diverse ethnic mix, had this history of causing trouble for both the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. You know, you've got your Chechens and and, and all those various groups, fiercely independent people, not keen on outsiders. So the Soviet Union had run the Caucasus pretty much from Rostov; it was their sort of headquarters, if you like, for for all their security and policing operations down in that part of the world. Uh, obviously. Um, It dealt a lot with Baku, because Baku, of course, was the key city for looking after the oil fields in the Caspian. Um, So Rostov was very important. It also, of course, was a, a communications hub. So a lot of the grain that was grown in the Ukraine, and a lot of the fruit that was grown in the Caucasus, because the Caucasus have a very Mediterranean climate, so it's good for fruit and vegetables, obviously, as well as the oil, and also has a lot of raw materials. A lot of that was shipped north into Rostov and elsewhere to the Soviet Union, and likewise, uh, Ukrainian grain, went through Rostov. So Rostov was a very, very important communications hub for the Soviet Union. But, and that's why Hitler made a point of taking it. Again, the Soviets made uh, a reasonable job of defending it. It took the Germans several efforts to do it. But of course, once they had it, it basically acted as the key for, you know, what became known as Operation Blau or Operation Blue, which was this dual-pronged attack uh, down into the Caucasus towards Baku and then obviously north uh, towards the Volga and Stalingrad. Now, we have talked a little bit about uh, Leningrad, uh, but uh, what
2: was the significance of Leningrad? Because Leningrad was able to hold out throughout the entire war, up until 1944 when it was relieved, and there were some minor attempts by the Germans to try to break through, but for the most part, Hitler just wanted to starve out the city. So how is the significance of Leningrad from the perspective of urban warfare on the uh, east front.
1: Well, first of course, politically, it's hugely important because it used to be St. Petersburg and it used to be the capital of the Russian Empire. You know, the Soviets moved it to Moscow because Moscow was more um, central. And also, I think they felt that they were at less at risk there, you know, because they were further away from the border and potential trouble. So they so they moved it. And obviously, once the Soviet Union was created, St. Petersburg became Leningrad named after, after, after Lenin. Um, and it was a major, again, a major industrial center, uh, major naval base, um, so politically very important, uh, to the Soviets, uh, infrastructure-wise very important to the Soviets. So it was vital that they, they kept it. And initially Hitler's plan had been to take it in concert with the Finns, because the Finns had fought that winter war in 1939, 40 against the Soviet Union over their border and had lost a great swathe of territory. Uh, so they sided with Hitler in what they called a continuation war. But uh, Marshal Mannerheim, the Finnish leader, very sensibly had decided all he wanted to do was reclaim Finnish territory. He did not want to start taking chunks of the Soviet Union. Uh, and what that meant was that his drive came to a halt north of Leningrad. So instead of pushing further towards the city, which would have greatly assisted the Germans, he came to a halt. So it greatly impeded Hitler's ability to capture the city, because as I mentioned earlier, it was never completely surrounded, so it meant they could keep on feeding, you know, reinforcements into it. Uh once it became very apparent that they couldn't overrun it, as you, as you just rightly pointed out, Hitler decided that he was going to beat it into submission by shelling and bombing it and starving the population in, you know, into surrendering. Uh, so that's that's the route he went. You know, like Stalingrad, well, he was just going to bludgeon his way and then capture it. With Leningrad. Because the outer defences were pretty good, plus the flaw in the plan involved with the fins, uh, and again, obviously, because it was a port, they could bring in uh, reinforcements from the sea. Uh, and then to the northeast, you've got uh, you know a major chain of lakes, which again the Soviets could ship supplies across. So I think you know, so Hitler decided that he would you know to he would use total war on the city and, and force it to surrender. Um, but of course that that. That didn't work out, you know. I mean, it, it held out until 1944, until such time it was finally relieved. And it's also important to remember because well. Hitler was trying to catch the Red Army. Did keep launching various counterattacks. You know, they did their utmost to drive the Germans away. But all the early ones, like their other counterattacks, you know, in the southern part of Soviet Union in Ukraine and, and in Belarusia, uh, were poorly planned and poorly executed and poorly prepared. So. You know, Often came unstuck again. The Red Army lost huge numbers of troops trying to defend, you know, Leningrad. Um, so there, there wasn't. It turned into trench warfare. To so, go back to the original point of your question. There wasn't really street fighting when it came to Leningrad. Obviously, there were towns in the outer defences that were captured and fought over, but essentially, it turned into siege warfare because the Soviets dug in in their outer perimeter outside the city. And likewise the Germans dug in facing those Soviet defences. Um it's also worth remembering as I as I just mentioned, that part of the world was not good for armoured warfare. So it's heavily forested and there are lots of lakes. So it it it, it wasn't friendly for manoeuvre warfare, very much an infantry battle. Um, you know, it was very difficult concentrating forces because well, you know, the geography simply got in the way. So it it, it, it was a very different type of warfare to to say, you know, Stalingrad or Sevastopol, where it was brutal street fighting, you know, to clear them out. Um, Hitler never really got into into the city, which is not to say Leningrad didn't suffer, you know, most horrendous losses because the Luftwaffe kept bombing it, long-range uh, German artillery shelled it, so uh, and, all, and you know, and they ran out of food uh, essentially, um, as I touched on on the book. You know, there was a black market for meat. Um, of a dubious origin because in places it was so bad they turned to cannibalism, so it shows you how bad things got. Yeah, and you mentioned
2: Kharkov as a very important industrial hub and it changed sides Uh, four times, you said? There was four battles throughout the course of the war. Could you give like a rough summary of the the different battles for uh, for Kharkov?
1: Sure, so essentially you've got... um... So by October 41, the Germans had reached the city. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the Soviets really didn't defend it. They conducted a rearguard action. I think it was a single division uh, allocated to, you know, defend the suburbs, if you like, uh, while they hurriedly removed as much industrial equipment as they could. Um, And then in March 42, um, encouraged by that winter offensive to save Moscow, Stalin ordered a counterattack to retake the city. Uh, again, it was one of those classically poorly trained—not uh, poorly trained—poorly prepared operations. They'd already been fighting in that area and southwest of the city. The Soviets had created this massive salient with troops in, you know, a bit like an early um, Kursk, if you will, um, and seemed blind to the fact that the Germans were massing either side of that salient. So they launched a major offensive in that salient with a view to looping round and and you know cutting off all the German forces west of Kharkov. But what that did was it simply drove them deeper into the trap they were already in. Uh, you know, the Germans were well aware of what they're doing. So that counterattack ended in tears. Uh, and then in March 1943, they tried, to, they tried to liberate it again, you know, because it's such an important city. Uh, and on this occasion, it was one of those very rare occasions where German troops managed to withdraw, although Hitler always ordered them you know, to stand fast wherever they were. Um, the von well, Manstein down there, the SS did him a favor because the SS divisions the north of the city went our positions untenable and drew. Uh so Ma- well, Manstein had a reason to evacuate the city, which he did. So his forces withdrew in good order and prepared to counterattack. And again, of course, the Soviets came headlong into the city, uh, stretched their supply lines wide. I mean, von Manstein launched this very famous riposte, which defeated um you know the Red Army once more. So that's your third battle. Uh and then the fourth one took place after Kursk, um, because you know the Germans ran out of steam there to the north of the Kursk salient. The Red Army was able to liberate the city of Orel, which is again a major communications hub, you know, because you had German shoulders either side of the Soviet bulge in Kursk. So they, they flattened out that northern shoulder, and then they did the same exactly the same with the southern shoulder of the Kursk salient by liberating the city of Belgorod and Kharkov. Uh, which was a, both bloody battles for the cities because the SS, the Wolfgang SS, did that utmost to prevent them, um, you know, liberating them. But they simply didn't have the resources to stop them, you know. By this time, um, uh, the German armed forces are increasingly short of resources. So uh, summer of 43, you know, Kharkov is is, is finally liberated for good. Uh, and of course, it's, it's that stage when Soviet morale really is taking a boost because they're going... You know, we've got the wherewithal all now to drive the Germans out of our cities and 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 you know and keep them. Um, so that's the four battles for Kharkov. So you you can see, but you can see again how uh, the importance of that city kind of skewed both sides' strategy all the time. You know, because what it did was it meant they lost the ability to maneuver on the battlefield because their their goal was that city, not not you know what's going on on the battlefield. If you like, now also uh, going back to forty two with Operation Lao
2: operation blue the germans also tried to advance towards grozny which most people know as the capital of chechnya but that failed why did why did the german advance into towards chechnya towards grozny uh fail in 42 i believe or 42. 43
1: 42.3 um well obviously it went reasonably well um, but, of course, by that point, the Soviets had created all these defensive lines, um, you know, between the Black Sea and the Caspian, because obviously the Caucasus is effectively a pond of land between those two seas. And again, enormously um, mountainous, you know, the, it's obviously the Caucasus is a mountain range. you know, so uh, not again, not ideal country to fight in, particularly in the winter. Um, and the Germans lack. Uh, they had some good mountain divisions. Uh, the Romanians committed some mountain divisions as well. So they had units specifically trained for mountain warfare, which was good, but they lacked armor. So I think initially there was um, only one or two panzer divisions available to to fight their way south. So because the further they got, the, the longer their supply lines became, the more stretched they were, and the more the Soviet defenses began to solidify. Uh, and also Stalin made it known that you know, Grosny was not to be lost, because if they lost that, there was a good chance they would get to Baku. Uh, and they didn't want to lose Baku because of the imports of the oil fields. Um, so really, the short answer is why they never made it is so They kind of lo- they ran out of steam. You know, the Russian winter got them, the mountains got them, um, and they were pretty much at the, the end of their lines of communication. Uh, but it's also re- worth remembering that while they were trying to f- cut their way to Grosny, which is sort of, you know, eastern part of the... Caucasus. They were also fighting their way down the eastern coast of the Black Sea. So all those uh, seaports in the western part of the Caucasus, obviously, they wanted to secure those to deny them to the uh, Soviet Navy. Uh, So effectively, you had two campaigns going on at the same time in that part of the world, both competing for resources. Um, I think it's Novusyskysk, forgive my pronunciation, major seaport. That that proves a major problem securing that because they simply didn't have the resources. Um, you know, I think it's uh, Batubi is another one. That, there's a series of major ports down that. I'm going from memory. going, you know, down that western that western coastline. Sorry, east, well, eastern coastline of the of, of the Black Sea. Major series of ports, and again, of course, the Soviets put up major resistance, uh, and all that took time to clear them. But at the same time, they're trying to get to, you know, trying to reach Krasniy, and then uh, and and then onwards. Uh, so it, it really it was a dissipation of resources because you've got both those campaigns going on and then the one heading towards um, Stalingrad, which is, you know, we both know with the benefit of our hindsight proved utterly fatal. Yes. Uh, speaking of uh,
2: Stalingrad, uh, we won't go into like too many details about the battle, but in terms of comparison, how did the Germans and the Red Army capabilities in urban uh, combat uh, operations, how did they compare when looking at the Battle of Stalingrad,
1: I, I think they were fairly evenly matched. I mean, the the, the major problem that the Germans had was that you know Stalin, as a dictator, was prepared to trade bodies. Now Hitler was prepared to do that to an extent because he didn't have the resources to keep replacing them. Um, so in terms of the defense of uh, you know Stalingrad on that western bank of the Volga, common sense would have been withdraw your troops to the eastern bank, but Hitler, Hitler. Stalin wouldn't let them do that. So they kept firing reinforcements since the fight. So it became a real meat grinder for the Red Army. I mean, it literally was a nutrition of bodies, if you like, um, which ultimately, of course, the Soviets won because of, because of that put, that disregard for human life. For the sake, you know, uh, Stalin had refused to allow the civilian population to be evacuated because he didn't want it an open city. He didn't want to signal the fact that he'd abandoned it. You know, that effectively Stalingrad, like Moscow, became a, a line in the sand. You know the, the the Germans were not allowed to cross. It was a red line. We called them these days, or we. It was a red line across. You know, which the Germans were not not allowed to cross. So, in in terms of you know sniper warfare, tunnel warfare, trench warfare, street fighting, they were kind of evenly matched because essentially by the winter they'd fought each other to a standstill, um, largely because of course both sides were running out of resources, but also of course what. Stalin did very cleverly. Was he limited what was being fed into the Stalingrad battle, because those reinforcements and new equipment coming out of his factories are actually being massed to the north and the south, ready for a major counteroffensive, which would cut either side of Stalingrad and of course um, surround the German garrison there. So he he he, you know, he played a masterful chess game of chess there, because effectively he held the Germans in checkmate. You know, in Stalingrad while he prepared for these major offensives, which, of course, targeted the satellite armies. So it targeted the uh, the Romanians, the Hungarians, uh, and the Italians, whose capabilities were a lot weaker than the Germans. And um, so when that attack came, you know, they collapsed, uh, which is what resulted in the German 6th Army then becoming trapped at Stalingrad. But again, it, it's a reflection of Hitler's obsession with Stalingrad that he wouldn't let 6th Army withdraw. Common sense goes, you don't, you know, you're fighting over ruined real estate, withdraw, regroup and fight another day. But of course, famously, he wouldn't let General Paulus, the commander there, withdraw, even when the relief column had got to within, I think it's about, they got to about 25 miles of them and the garrison could hear the guns. They were not allowed to fight their way towards the relief column. I mean, it's, I think to you and I, that's just madness. You know, military sense was, you've got quarter of a million men trapped there. Even if you can save 100,000 of them by fighting your way south and meeting up with uh, von Manstein's relief column, then that, that, that that's a result. But, of course, Hitler refused. He said, no, you stay there till the relief column gets you." But he didn't have the strength to get his way all the way to Stalingrad. Now, by
2: 1944, so Kursk and Stalingrad are behind us, and now the Germans are on the defensive. They're the ones now having to defend the cities, they're not quite yet in Germany itself, but how would you compare the uh, the Red Army and the Vermark in terms of uh, street fighting or urban warfare capabilities in 1944? Uh, were they about evenly matched? Did the Red Army now have a bit of an advantage now? Uh,
1: well, because by 44, it's a case of the Red Army working to liberate uh, Soviet cities. So, obviously, they had to think out uh, where possible, think of ways of um, you know, liberating them with as little damage to the cities possible, and that quite often involved, you know, partisans and fifth columnists and, and what have you, securing sites uh, you know, on their advance. Uh, although the cities have been horribly damaged because what well, even the Soviets didn't want to flatten completely what was left trying to liberate them. So they had to give some thought to how they would, you know, rescue their own cities. Certainly by 44, the Germans are stuck in this dilemma of trying to conduct what they called flexible defence because they really didn't have the ability to hold a static defence line along the complete length of the Eastern Front. Uh, So they were reliant on sort of mobile, more mobile warfare to plug gaps every time the the Soviets broke through. But in 44, of course, Stalin conducts his version of D-Day in Operation Overlord with something called Operation Bagration, which was designed to destroy um army group center um to the east of minsk and of course once that was done red army's in minsk it's then on the road to warsaw and once it's on the road to warsaw it's on the road to berlin um so operation bagration becomes this pivotable point because if you like stalingrad and kursk showed the red army could win whereas actually operation bagration is the decisive turning point because effectively all of Avog centers wiped out uh and the front completely collapses and doesn't and doesn't solidify again until the Red Army reaches the gates of Warsaw. You know, that shows you how desperate the situation was for the Germans. Um and by that point, of course, increasingly Hiller's having to think about, you know, creating or declaring what he calls fortress cities uh, in a desperate bid to slow down the Soviet advance. Yeah, you mentioned
2: Warsaw and that was a major urban battle in uh, 1944, beginning in August 1st, because the Polish Home Army wanted to launch an uprising against the Germans to coincide with the Red Army advance. What was the original Home Army uh, plan for the Warsaw Uprising in 1944?
1: Uh, The Polish Home Army was very, very large and well-organized across occupied Poland, and of course, what they were desperate to do is what they wanted, um, and don't forget, you've got the Polish government in exile in London, you know, supported by Churchill. But what the Polish army wanted to do was rise up across Poland um, and try and, you know, liberate as many cities as possible before the Red Army arrived, and in particular, of course, Warsaw. Because if they could declare, if the Polish army took control, they could cl- declare a government uh, which would prevent Polish communists taking power in Warsaw, which of course is what Stalin wanted. There was a communist backed Polish army fighting with the Red Army. So their intention was to head off, if you will, uh, the advance of the Red Army. Uh, what happened was the Hobie army rose up, uh, secured much of central Warsaw. Uh, but the Waffen SS ensured that the Red Army did not reach them in time. And then proceeded to ruthlessly crush the Home Army. I mean, again, logic suggests that it would have been sensible for Hitler to withdraw his forces west of Warsaw and leave it to the Russians. Uh, but no, he systematically crushed the Polish Army, Home Army, uh, and then and then Himmler instructed the flattening of the entire city. I mean, he leveled most of it uh, out of you know out of nothing more than a spike, quite frankly. Um, so Warsaw is a prime example of probably one of the, you know, the most horrific and worst aspects of urban warfare in that, um, and of the units, the, a lot of the units that the Germans used to clear the home army were very ad hoc. So they had something called the, uh, Del, Del Vanguard Brigade made up of, you know, criminals, Russian renegades. So were the most appalling units, with the most appalling discipline, who basically just took the operation as carte blanche to do what they wanted to whom they wanted. So you had the most appalling atrocities take place on the uh, on the streets of Warsaw, uh, uh, and crushingly, of course, for Churchill, was, it was just too far for the RAF to reach, really, to drop any large-scale uh, volume of supplies. They dropped some, um, but it was not enough, you know. And, and tragically, Home Army of done such a good job of securing the central districts of the city, uh, was systematically crushed by the Germans. Now, what factors contributed to the Home Army's defeat?
2: Probably the lack of supplies from the Western Allies that you just mentioned and also the Red Army. I think Stalin ordered the Red Army to halt before Warsaw just let the Germans that, uh, take them out. The,
1: yeah, there's a school of thought that thinks Stalin could go a halt to the Red Army deliberately to allow the Germans to crush Polish Army. And I think there's an element of truth of that. It's also worth remembering, of course, Warsaw represented the high watermark for Operation Bagration. So by that point, the Red Army was exhausted. You know, it, it covered hundreds of miles uh conducted lots of heavy fighting so again it was at the end of its supply lines uh and indeed the polish communist forces did get over the oh the river's name escapes me now suppose, but but did, is that um, the Vistula you're talking about yeah did get over the vistula and tried to fight their way through um to the polish home army home army were de- defeated um, you know, the Red Army did its utmost to try and get to them, but they just, they couldn't, you know, they're at their end lines. And also there was a a major tank battle fought um, just to the east of Warsaw involving the Red Army and the Waffen-SS. And the Waffen-SS gave the Red Army a good clobbering. I mean, they, you know, they wiped out an entire mechanised corps, took thousands of prisoners. So the to be fair to the Red Army, they suffered major defeats and were at the end of their, you know, at, at, at the end of, the home watermark of their advance. Um, so they, they, it was the SS that sealed the fate of the Home Army. I think more than more than Stalin. Um, what Stalin could have done, of course, was was direct the Red Army to help them more than it did, and he could have dropped more supplies in than he did. Um, but of course, that didn't Polish Home Army didn't meet his political agenda, which was to put. Um, a communist Polish government in power, which is what he wanted.
2: Now, how was Warsaw eventually captured by the Red Army? It was in January
1: 1945, I believe. Basically, by that point, you know, the Germans had stripped the area of all their major units. There wasn't really anything um, to defend it with. Uh, So pretty much the garrison, without permission, withdrew. You know, there wasn't anything they could do. Um, So they, they pretty much left once the Red Army was... Was approaching, but you think that you know from August '44 to January it means they suffered, you know, another six months of German occupation before before finally being liberated.
2: Now, you mentioned earlier that Hitler would declare several cities fortresses, and especially during late '44 '45. Um, could you go into more detail? What did that mean, and what effect did this have on the urban battles during the last stages of? war on the Eastern Front.
1: Sure. I mean he took at basically and leaf out Stalin's book in that he, you know, like leningrad selling in Moscow, he announced that certain cities were fortress cities and were not to be given up ever. You know, that the garrison was to fight to the last. And then his fevered mind, he imagined he had all these mobile armies that could then cut their way through to the cities once they were surrounded, liberate them and they would become springboards for counter offenses against the Red Army. But of course farcically he didn't really have the resources to do that. So he combined he condemned all those cities, declared fortress cities to miserable fates. Amongst them was Budapest, in the Hungarian capital. He didn't want to relinquish that because obviously that was on the road to Vienna, so he didn't want to expose Vienna. Uh, also, uh, he clung on to Budapest for as long as possible uh, because he wanted to ra- maintain control of Hungary's oil fields. I mean, they were overrun by the Red Army fairly quickly in the um, in the summer of forty-four, but he he wanted access to those. Um, and then to the north, you've got Konigsberg, which was the capital of Prussia. He declared that a fortress city because it was the capital of Prussia. Um, and he 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 wanted that as a high water mark for the Soviet advance. And then likewise to the south, in Silesia, he did the same thing with the city of Breslau. He, de- he declared it a, a fortress city. Uh, what's interesting is Budapest was eventually taken. I mean, the garrison suffered a miserable fate. Um, He wouldn't let them withdraw, and when they finally did, they were massacred in the streets. I mean, it was just a bloodbath, um, the liberation of Budapest by the Red Army. Uh, Breslau, quite remarkably, held out until the very end of the war, so they didn't surrender until after the German surrender. Um, And Konigsberg was overrun, but again, held out for as long as possible, because it became pivotal to something called Operation Hannibal, which is basically a German Dunkirk. And what they did was, they conducted this maritime evacuation. Uh, along the coast, the Baltic coast, of as many units and civilians as possible and the path of the advancing Red Army. Um, and Konigsberg's port isn't great, but just up the coast from it's a place called Pilau, which had a deep water port. Uh, so those two locations became very, very important to hold out for as long as possible in order to evacuate. I mean, I think they evacuated over a million people in the end, you know, by sea, obviously under attack by Soviet U-boats and the Red Air Force and what have you. Um, but they, so Konigsberg became this sort of, you know, last stand that, that the longer they held out, the better it was. Um, and in fact, Konigsberg lasted longer than the ports to the west of it. I mean, they, they slowly succumbed to Soviet attacks until Konigsberg was on its own and then and then eventually over, overwhelmed. Now, by 1945, what resources, what capabilities
2: do the German Wehrmacht still have? in terms of urban warfare, urban defense uh, at at this time? Obviously, of course, they're losing the war and they're kind of on their last stand, but uh, do they still have some capabilities left to kind of cause trouble for the Red Army?
1: Not really. I mean, by that stage of the war, the Germans are acutely short of manpower. Of course, all, uh, most of their veterans are dead or wounded, so the more experienced troops have gone, um, you know, they're reliant on things like the Hitler Youth, so it's teenagers, uh, uh, and the Volkssturm, or the... People's Storm, you know, which is poorly named organisation if there ever was, which again were basically pensioners. Uh, so they had this, and then SS units, SS police units, some German army units. So they had a whole hodgepodge of different units trying to d- defend various cities. I mean, that became the case with Berlin, none of whom really were trained or suited for, for urban warfare. But the key point thing with the, with the Soviets is that for them, increasingly, particularly once they're out the Soviet Union, urban warfare became a blunt instrument. So they tended, whereas the Germans had developed specific siege equipment, the Soviets never really did that. So they relied on their battlefield equipment. So heavy artillery, tanks, rocket launches, uh, and rocket launchers, and their modus operandi pretty much was to flatten any building with defenders in it. Um, on the whole, there was not really any need to secure a building uh, if it was German or East European, um, because that would result in a loss of life. So it was actually much easier to flatten it. So that's quite often what they did. Um, so it consigned lots of German defenders to very miserable deaths, you know, because they they obviously died in collapsing buildings. So um, the Soviets increasingly relied on firepower. There was very little finesse in in their in their street fighting capabilities. Um, I mean what's remarkable is most tank commanders don't like putting tanks on the streets of cities because they're vulnerable. You know, they're vulnerable to tank weapons, to mines. Uh, you know, to ditches, to craters, to cellars collapsing, you know, they can to into all that sort of thing. Uh, but the Soviets had no no such scruples, you know, they would put Joseph Stalin heavy tanks onto the streets, you know, great huge heavy things with great old tank gun barrels as well, you know, which would snag on buildings. No, they didn't, didn't worry about that. They would just drive up point blank range to a building and, and, and level it with everyone in. Now, they already were using tanks quite often as they were so close to the building that the round would pass straight through anyway, you know, so it wouldn't bring the building down. But Yes, you, the answer to your question is by this by by certainly by late forty four, early forty five, German street fighting capabilities are pretty really basic because they don't have the resources, uh, you know, manpower or the training to do it. Uh, and the Soviets have decided that the easy way is if they can avoid clearing buildings, then they're going to do that. Um, so it yeah, it, it it just made warfare even more
2: horrific. You especially see that in the Battle of uh, Berlin, which is of course. They definitely, the Red Army definitely did not care about buildings in that sense, since that was the capital of the Third Reich. And also they wanted to capture Hitler alive and bring him back to Moscow so forth.
1: Yeah, in, I mean, you're right. With with Berlin, you know, the gloves were off. It's, it's the lair of the Nazi beast of Hitler, if you like, because Hitler never left. So they knew he was there. But ironically, actually... Um, Marshal Konoff and Zhukov, responsible for taking the city, were under pressure because Stalin played one off against the other as to who would be the victor of Berlin. Um, so it became a race of time between you know, their their armies uh, as to who who would be you know the one that would go down in history for taking the city. So they, it gave them an added urgency. You know when they when they fought across the Oder, there was this added urgency, which actually in a way speeded up uh, their efforts to take the city, which in some cases, of course, encouraged street fighting and building clearing, uh, because once they were in the, um, once they were in the confines of the central districts, uh, some of them, they, they could level, some of them, they couldn't, um, and things like the Reichstag and other buildings, they obviously wanted to capture those, uh, they were wrecked but it was symbolic that the hammer and sickle be hoisted over the Reichstag, so, so they needed to clear that of the defenders. Now, few people know this, but
2: Berlin is actually not the last battle, urban battle of the Eastern Front. It was actually Prague, and fighting in that city actually continued even after the official German surrender. Why was there fighting in
1: Prague after the, the German surrender? I always find the fight of Prague, uh, Prague sorry, Prague, fascinating. Um, you're right, you know, there's this popular misconception that the Second World War ended uh, with the storming of the Reichstag and Hitler's suicide and the German garrison surrendering in Berlin. Uh, but actually, the fighting went on for at least another week after Berlin was overrun um, around the Czech capital. The reason for that being is that the Germans had an army group Uh, the remains of Army Group Centre, trapped to the east of the city. Uh, And also there were tens of thousands of German civilian and military administrators in the city. Um, And they became caught up in this sort of crossfire because the Czechs rose up, understandably, to try and throw the the Germans out of the city. They wanted to take control of it before the Red Army turned up, like Warsaw, so there, there was that added urgency. And then to complicate matters, there was... A division of Russian renegades outside the city, who had been recruited by the Germans uh, and had come under the SS command, but the SS had disowned them, and the Russians thought that one of the ways to save their necks would be to sign to the Czech's insurgents because they would help with the liberation of the city, uh, and that would carry them favour. Uh, and then at the same time, the SS decided to mount using the second a battle group from the second SS uh, Panzer Division to mount this rescue operation, to cut their way into the northern parts of the city to rescue as many German civilians and administrating, administration staff as possible. So you had this very, very confused situation going on in, in the city. Uh, and the Germans didn't... Obviously, it took time as well for news that Germany had surrendered. I mean, to be fair, the official documents weren't signed until, what, the 8th of May. So it, it took six days after the surrender of the garrison for the official surrender to be signed. So in the meantime, you ended up this very, very confused battle for the city of city of Prague, um, which led to a very, very confused situation. Uh, Red Army very very keen to get their hands on the uh, Russian Renegade Division because obviously they viewed them as traitors. Um, so it was all a bit of a mess, really. Now, what's kind of
2: the legacy of urban warfare on the Eastern Front, especially considering that many of the same cities that we talked about are now battlefields once again in the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, Kharkov, or Kharkiv, as the Ukrainians prefer to call it, that's been especially a major battlefield. Uh, The Crimea, uh, the Russians did try to push towards Odessa, but also like the Crimea has been in the news because the Ukrainians are trying to push towards that area. Uh, What is kind of the legacy of the Second World War? And-
1: well the the immediate pace war legacy, of course, is that during the Cold War, uh Western armies and particularly NATO expended a lot of time and energy training for uh fighting in urban built-up areas. Um, you know, particularly of course because there was a garrison in West Berlin, which was, you know, behind the Warsaw pack lines in East Germany. Um so the West spent a lot of time uh you know looking at what happened during the second world war obviously looking at maneuver warfare and mobile warfare and all the other lessons that come out of it but obviously clearly had to accept that street street fighting in major large cities was potentially a factor life should the third world war uh break out and i think that and you know and of course since then we've seen a lot of major battles for cities you know during the korean war you had incheon um you know uh Kusan and Seoul. Um, Vietnam War, of course, you famously had, you know, the Tet offensive with the attacks in Saigon and uh, you know, Forty Odd, other major uh, South Vietnamese cities. So uh urban warfare in the modern era, if you like, has become a factor of life. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Uh Sarajevo, of course, during the, the wars in the Balkans, famously became um, a scene of fighting. Uh, Beirut again, of course, during the 1980s became a scene of urban warfare. You know, the Israelis famously cut their way to the city uh, with Operation Peace for Galilee. Um, so you, and again, Syrian civil war. I mean, we've seen Syrian cities. You know, uh, and then most recently, um, independent Ukraine with its with this with its war on, on Russia. I mean, I think the Ukraine Russia war was particularly tragic, particularly. Um, in light of during the Second World War, of course, Ukrainians and Russians had fought shoulder to shoulder. Uh, you know, they were brothers, brother soldiers, they were all part of the Soviet Union. Um, and in a way, you can understand Russia's dismay at Ukraine going independent. Um, uh, an analogy I quite often use is to say, well, can you imagine if in the 1950s, Scotland had declared for the Warsaw Pact? You know, the English, the Welsh, and the Scots, and the Irish have shed blood together as common allies. Over the centuries, um, you know, all those nations are, are are tough fighters and have tough reputation. So, if you imagine Scotland suddenly going, yeah, we're be the Warsaw Pact. So, I think for Russia, you can see that. You know, when it looked like Ukraine was going to join NATO, you could understand its understand its horror in terms of the lessons for urban warfare. Well, clearly they've not been learned, have they? Because they they've been fighting over exactly the same cities and and, and, and but with poorer results. Um, you know, Russia had this large armoured and mechanized army, uh, which clearly had not been modernized. Um, it's performed poorly on the battlefield. You know, as we know their offensive towards uh, you know Kyiv, as we now know it, uh failed fairly rapidly. Um Russian troops have struggled to eject Ukrainian defenders from other Ukrainian cities. Uh so it's it's they, I think they kind of had to learn those new lessons all over again. And I think probably the hang up for the Russian Federation from the Soviet Union, of course, it's, it's mindset was large scale armored warfare on the plains of central Europe, not street fighting. So they, I don't think they, you know, they, I would imagine at the moment, they probably decide the, Russia, they've been furiously training for urban warfare once again, because it's a skill that they appear to have lost, um, and that, and that, I think, is clearly uh, exemplified by the fact they've been using mercenaries. So famously with the Wagner Group, you know, who have been in the news a lot but recently. You know, um, they're what we know as a PMC, private military company. Well, an old, an old money. That is, their mercenaries. You know, and they've been relying on them to do a lot of the dirty work. So again, it shows you how. Um, degraded the Russian army's street fighting capabilities have come.
2: Yeah, the only other experience they would have had was the uh, Battle of Grozny and the fighting that they did in Chechnya in the 1990s. But even then, they just pretty much flattened the city rather than try to fight it street by street, uh, per se. Cause...
1: You're right. Yeah, I mean, the, the Battle for Grozny during the Chechen War was, was a complete and utter horrific Bloodbath, like they always are. Major cities are involved, and in, and again, you're right. They they flattened it, but I suppose that's what getting on for thirty years ago. They they don't they don't seem to have they don't seem to have learned anything. And of course, the problem you have is that the generation of military officers that would have been in charge of then are now either retired or dead. You know, so you that's the problem with militaries is they're never static, and you're constantly losing experience. You know, as as an army ages. Um, which, which again, it means what it boils down to is its quality is 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 dictated by the level of training that it undergoes all the time. And I think clearly the Russian army today is is is, is lacking because it's it's you know on paper it's a classic example of David versus Glass. The red the Russian army should have easily overwhelmed the Ukrainians, but it it didn't. Um, you know its ability to generate large scale military offensive operations clearly doesn't exist anymore. You know, like you're saying, when you think of the major, major big battles fought in the Ukraine during the Second World War with large groups of troops, uh, modern Russia doesn't seem to have been able to replicate that. Um, and both sides have, have bogged down very quickly. I mean, it, you know, it seems to have become a war of quality versus numbers, you know, with the Ukrainians increasingly relying on their, their level of training, because uh, of course, they've benefited greatly from training by the uh, by NATO. Uh, they understood the value of NCOs, which I understand that the Russian army doesn't. Uh, and of course, as we all know, NCOs tend to be the backbone of an army. Uh, you know, that vital link between your officers and the men. Uh, and the Ukrainians seem to have mastered that. And because the West has rallied to their cause, of course, they've ended up with a lot of modern generation equipment, which probably slower time may have an impact on the battlefield. I know there's been much discussion on whether the Ukrainian um you know counterattacks offensive is, is is making much ground or having much success. But for the Ukrainians, of course, again it politically you've got to decide, you know, what what are acceptable losses to liberate your own your own soil. And if and if you're committed to losing too many men, again you're going to lose a lot of experienced troops that have been trained that are difficult to replace. And then you're back in that cycle of the fighting stagnates and, you know, so it's a vicious circle. Yeah,
2: so we are kind of seeing this legacy play out uh before us. So uh this has been a real interesting albeit a very heavy topic especially towards the end as we just mentioned. But do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't get to in the interview? Uh
1: well, I think my final thought is never invade the uh, Russia because it's a recipe for disaster, you know. Everyone that's attempted it has learned that the hard way. Be it Napoleon or or, or Hitler, um, and again, I think you know. And then another modern comparison, of course, is is Gaza and Gaza City. You know with what's going on with uh, Israel and the Palestinians at the moment. You know, people seem to have short memories. They're shocked at the devastation caused by urban warfare, but that's a sad reality of fighting in in major cities. That's what happens. You know, the only way you can get a defender out or neutralize them is to flatten the building they're in. Um, and that's always been the case and, and, and probably always will be. I don't think there isn't a magic recipe for, um, urban warfare. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, your, your troops can be well trained, particularly attackers. You can train them on, you know, built room clearing and building, clearing and all that, but ultimately it, you know, whatever the real estate you're fighting over will end up badly damaged. I mean, that that's the reality of it. Um. In terms of the book, well, I hope it, it gives people a good overview, uh, uh, but also it kind of takes the reader down to the tactical level. You know, it, it describes the kind of key bits of the fighting for each of the cities, so it gives you a sense of what happened. And uh, I say, as we mentioned at the beginning, you know, commonality always, of course, is with cities, is that you need to secure, um, you know, government buildings, town halls, uh, bridges, railway stations, uh, and none of that's changed. You know, they are... If you control those, then you control the city, essentially, uh, and that's why they always become focuses for the fighting. Um, you know, and that was particularly the case in, you know, Warsaw and um, well, all the others, uh, Budapest, Vienna. You know, because we only touched on Vienna, but um, so I think the lessons probably from the Second World War are still valid. It's just how you implement them that's the it's the difficult part, I guess. In this age of AI and drones. Um, It certainly makes life easier for the attacker because you have the ability to see in buildings without you know having to put a person in that room um so the technology is helping but ultimately it's still about boots on the ground even at this stage so we always like to end our interviews by
2: asking our guests uh what are you
1: working on now uh well funny enough uh i just finished a book on Churchill, so that's just gone to the publishers uh Earlier in the year, I also did a book on uh, the fall of Berlin, so again, same theme, Battle of the City. So I've done a, a short book on, on the Battle for Berlin, and that's with the publishers. Uh, and then the project that I'm just about to launch myself into is on the Battle for the Rhineland um, from the German perspective. As you may be aware, I did a book called The Devil's Bridge about the Battle for Arnhem from the German perspective, and then I did one on the Battle of the Bulge from the German perspective. So I'm, I'm going to do one on on all the various battles for the for the Rhine. And, and try and get the reader in the mindset of why did the Germans you know because by the time the Allies had got to the Rhine and the Rhineland the war was pretty much lost anyway so I'm trying to get the reader into the mindset of why did the Germans carry on resisting uh, what was the reason for that were their defensive choices the right ones uh, you know because you've got the Reichswald Hürtgen there's all those major forests um, you know so there's there's a lot of fighting that took place you know both on the Upper Rhine and on the Lower Rhine you uh, you got fence Colmar Pocket, of course, and then things like Operation Plunder. You know, uh the Germans really did not have the resources to fend off Monty when he finally launched his major set piece battle to get over the Rollins. So it looks at all that. Um uh, I have yet to write it. <laughs> um so that will keep me quiet in the new year.
2: <laughs> it's a dilemma a lot of us face. Uh we mm-hmm. got this huge project planned, but yet we haven't begun it but uh but yeah but when you finish some of those maybe we'll have you on once uh once again on the podcast yeah it would be a pleasure thank you uh anthony tucker jones thank you for joining us on the new books network thank you very much for having me on again thank you for listening to this episode of the new books network i am your host steven Sakevich. until next time